So let me catch us up to where we are as we approach Job chapter 11. Um, Remember, Job has just responded to his second friend, Bildad. And if you remember some of the things that he said, he was very frustrated at the end of chapter nine with the way in which he felt like his life was just falling through his hands like sand. It was like a, a runner who was running a race or a shuttle that was just going back and forth or even a bird of prey. He felt like his life was intentionally going away from him. And remember, the thing that he lamented the most was that he no longer was in close proximity to the Lord his God, that he was unable to speak of God without fear because he had grown fearful because as he spoke of his suffering, as he dealt with his suffering, it was crushing to him. And he recognized that he could not just put on a happy face and pretend like nothing was happening. That is an unlivable and an unbiblical theology, as it were right? I mean, who among us can, with the suffering that we have, just pretend like nothing is going on and and just kind of pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and act like everything's okay? Which is, unfortunately, goes back to my point earlier about our inability to grieve and our inability to suffer well. As a culture, this is, this is so foreign to us. We just think that when bad things happen, the best thing you can do is get up, dust yourself off, and you keep moving, no matter how wounded you are. And that is bravado. That is machissimo. That is what it means to be a man. You don't, you don't cry. You don't pause. You don't reflect. Did, did men write the Psalms? Do they not weep? Does, does David not say that I am utterly exhausted from my weeping on my bed all night long? Now, I dare say you would not, if you were to stand before King David, say to him, you sissy. I don't think you would say that to him. One of the fiercest men, remember the song that they sang? Because this was the original worship song. For those of you who want to take it all the way back to the traditional hymns, this is what we would sing. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. We'd sing it in Yiddish, obviously, but you get what I'm saying. So David was a man known for being able to destroy and kill. He was also a man that knew how to grieve and knew how to sorrow and knew how to lament, and he knew how to suffer well. And so we hear Job saying the same thing. This is not something I can just pretend can go away because it overwhelms me. And that's honest. And his desire to be near to the Lord so that he could speak of him without fear is something that we too should desire. See, I think that part of our problem is we're scared to ask questions. We're scared to give vent to our anger because we're afraid of what it's going to do to what we think of God. We are afraid that somehow, some way, we're going to find out that he's not there or he's just this little man behind the curtain at Oz, pulling levers and making noise, but not real, not furious, not reckless in his love for us, not intense in his pursuit of us. See, we are afraid to question for the very reason that Job is not, because we don't know how to wrestle in that liminal or interim space. And so Job is wrestling in spirit and truth. Remember, Job even questioned the very attributes of God, something that most of us quake at and think, he sinned, didn't he? 
Didn't, didn't Job sin in questioning and asking if God was like a mere man? Does he have the eyes of a man? Does he have the years of a man? Isn't that sin? It's only sin if that's what you conclude. It's not sin if that is what you ask. Because given Job's circumstances, God is going, well, that's exactly what you probably should think given the way you think. But I'm here to tell you I am far more mysterious than you are. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. That is not a condemnation, but a revelation. And so Job is actually trying to seek the Lord. Remember what we read in Psalm 9 this morning. What does it say? At the very end of verse 10, it says, those who seek the Lord, he will be found. Job is seeking the Lord. The others, his friends, what are they seeking? They're seeking for Job to shut up. They're seeking for Job to repent and do what he's supposed to so everybody can go back to the way they've lived their lives up to now. They just want everything to be normal. They want to be able to watch the game and not have all this stuff going on. Unless you're a Tennessee fan and it's just painful. I'm sorry. I'm so- I watched the game. I hurt with Patrick. There was wailing, gnashing of teeth. There he is. Bless his heart. He doesn't even know. And so, <laughs> and so they just wanted to go back to normal. They just want to be able to live life as it once was without all these questions. How many of us are like that? How many of us just want people, just, just don't talk about stuff like that. Don't look into the abyss and you don't have to worry about it. Just sing, oh, happy day and we'll all be fine, right? Walk on sunshine. I just dated myself. So his friends keep coming up with these theologies that they have erected that are minimalistic and they paint themselves into a corner which they can't even live with if suffering comes their way. And so what we're going to see out of Zophar is more of the same in a sense but from a different angle. Remember Eliphaz, he had a vision. Who can argue with a godly vision? except that if you remember, his vision was patently unbiblical and ungodly. And then he talked about his his experience because he's probably the oldest and the wisest. So he used both biblical, uh, not unbiblical, but, uh, but this spiritual vision, which you hear people do. I had a vision. I have a word for you. Oh, do you now? Now, is it biblical is the real question, not what do you have? And so, so he had a word for Job, and he had his experience. And then Bildad came along, and what did he appeal to? He said, well, yeah, that, that, that's great, but what about tradition? What about what all of our forefathers have said? What about what was said in the 16th century? What about what, well, he didn't say 16th century. It would have been B.C., not A.D. But, but what, about, what about our tradition? Shouldn't tradition dictate what we are? Yeah, as long as it is biblical. But remember, what Bildad said was not biblical. He spoke of a transcendent God who never comes near. He spoke of suffering that only makes sense if you've done something wrong. He had a very narrow view, an impersonal view of the Lord his God. Well, Zophar is going to appeal to wisdom, but it's in the null position. It's interesting how he argues that he know, how much he knows that God is unknowable. Really? How much he is aware that God cannot be known. Is that a livable theology? If God cannot be known, what hope do we have? Now, 
The trouble is the dialectical tension of what we read in Isaiah, right? Because his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But he has made himself known. Not exhaustively, but enough so that we could be saved. So does God desire to be known? Absolutely he does. And if you don't believe me, let's listen to Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Hear this from God's word. Thus says the Lord, and and apply this to Zophar as we go through. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Did you you hear that? Of all the things that you would boast in, what the Lord would have you to boast in is that you both understand God and you know him. Now, if you were like me, you would push against that. How in the world can we understand God in the person and work of Jesus Christ? What we understand is that he wants to redeem us, as mysterious as that is. is it, what we understand is that he loves us. Listen to what else it says. That he understands and he knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. How many of you boast in knowing the Lord? How many of you boast in your understanding of the Lord? Because see, we've become so neurotic in our culture that that we, we feel weird about boasting in anything. Either we are Terrell Owens, still trying to get a job and thinking we're awesome, or we are false humility incarnate blubbering and acting as if, no, 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 I can't know anything. I'm just a fool. I'm a fool for Jesus. It's just, it, we, we're people of the pendulum. We don't know how to rest in the middle ground of there is something worth boasting in. And it is knowing that the Lord our God is good and he loves us and he is steadfast and he keeps his covenant forever. It cannot be broken. Boast in that, would you? Think about what we read in 1 Peter. When you have the opportunity to share, to boast in this with someone who doesn't know, do it. Boast in the goodness of the Lord your God. But here's the problem. We don't reflect enough on it. We don't spend enough time remembering it because we're so kinetic. We don't Sabbath well or Lord's Day well. We don't do any of that very well. And so we don't have anything to give anyone, really, because we haven't even thought about it. And so what we end up giving is not something that we truly boast in because you boast in what you know, what has affected you. And so here Jeremiah tells us the Lord desires to be known and not only known, but for you to understand him and boast in your knowledge of him. So that sets the stage for us as we approach Zophar. He is going to be the wise man who boasts in his wisdom. So let's take it piece by piece, beginning in verses 1 through 6, Job 11. Hear God's word again this morning. When Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? For you say, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, 
that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom. So, no, I did not pick it up in the middle of the chapter. That is, in fact, how Zophar begins. Notice he, he doesn't waste any time. He straight away says to him, he says, you are speaking blasphemy. In essence, he says, you are speaking wrongly of God, and should you be allowed to speak and no one challenge you? He basically tells him, shut up. And I have been the one who has been declared your prosecutor. I will deal with this now. Wow, that's a pretty interesting position to take. How many of you have done that with other people? How many of you have assumed the position of wisdom and you step in telling them, you hush your mouth, I will now speak. What's interesting is how wrong he gets it straight away from the start. Notice what he says. He summarizes what Job is saying in this way. He says, my doctrine, he says, for you say my doctrine is pure. Is that what Job said? Having gone through what we've read of Job so far, where does Job say my understanding is right, my doctrine is pure? Is he not actually saying the opposite? Is he not actually saying, remember what he said last time, he said, Lord, you spent so much time creating me. Why are you so quick to destroy that which you created? Does that sound like pure doctrine to you or confusion? He is wrestling. At no point does Job argue that his doctrine is pure. So in fact, so far, isn't even right from the start. He is falsely accusing Job of something he is not guilty of. And he even goes on to say, and I am clean in God's eyes. Now remember what Job said at the end of chapter 9. He said, if I could take and scrub myself with lie, I could never make myself pure before you. Because if I did, you would throw me immediately into the pit and dirty me again. Because no one is pure before you. So Zophar's premise of what Job is saying, and therefore the presuppositions of his very argument that he's going to unfold are wrong. So what does that tell you Zophar's been doing or not doing? Listening. Zophar hasn't listened to a word hardly that Job has said. He's keyed in on a few phrases that automatically set Zophar off. And many of you are the same way, myself included. You hear somebody say something, and you don't listen to what they actually say. You hear the word predestination. You're like, oh, yeah not knowing what they may mean, not unpacking what may be their presuppositions on the issue. What actually does the Bible say about this issue and what has been distorted by man and tradition? Or you hear any key phrase that any of you may have, and instead of you hearing the rest of what someone says, you have already latched onto and began to unpack your own argument in your head. Instead of truly caring for the person that you're talking to and being more concerned with, will God be glorified by this conversation which remember what Christ said, I remind you that he said, the world will know who you are by the way that you argue with one another. Isn't that what he said? Do we have any Bible scholars in this room? That is not what he said at all. He said, the world will know who you are by the love that you show one another. Me and Matt Sowers and Chris Byerly have undertaken to the reading of the book of church order For those of you who don't know, we're a Presbyterian church. And we have this thing called the Book of Church Order, and it's in a binder because apparently it can change, which is fine. Sometimes it needs to change. But there's this wonderful set of truths in the preface that we were saying, if Presbyterians would actually just do the preface, this would be an awesome denomination. 
because it talks about charitability. It talks about working with those who, uh, who are peacemakers. It talks about actually caring for and allowing liberty on certain beliefs. That is not what we're known for, I hate to tell you. But it was, it's what we ought be known for. Where did we forget this truth? Well, we forget at the moment that we cease to listen, that we cease to actually care for others and recognize that God is truly sovereign and he doesn't need you, oh, wise man or woman, to fix anything. He's got it. And so, so far, he's not even listening. He couldn't care less what Job really is saying. He, he wants to be heard. He wants an opportunity to show and and put forth his wisdom, because that is what, in fact, he cares about. And he goes on to say, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you. What's interesting is that is, in fact, what God is going to do. But it's not going to be for the purpose that Zophar would prefer. It's actually going to be for the purpose of showing Zophar, Bildad, and Eliphaz wrong. He goes on to say, and that would tell you the secrets of wisdom. So here, Zophar is suggesting, and I I forgot to read the last part of verse six, and I appreciate you guys telling me that, but let me do that now because it's pretty important to what needs to be said. He says, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts less of you than your guilt deserves. So what he's saying is when God speaks, what you're going to discover is that you're worse than what you thought you were. Because God, who you questioned his attributes, is bigger and worse than you think he is. And he is really going to put the screws to you when he speaks. Remember who he's talking to, by the way? Job, who lost his, all of his children, all of his stuff, his marriages in shambles. And Zophar says, no, really, you deserved far, far worse, you worm. And when God shows up, he's going to unpack all of it, and you're going to be worse. Anybody ever heard somebody say that to you? Anybody ever said that to someone? That's bad theology as it turns out. I get the whole total depravity, radical depravity discussion. And yes, at some level, we are worse than what we thought, but in Christ, we are none of that. And that we should celebrate. That should bring us joy. And we should never speak to those who are hurting in these terms. That is never comforting to hear, well, if you thought losing your kids was bad, if you thought losing everything you had was bad, if you thought losing your marriage was bad, it could have been worse. So you ought to be celebrating, Job. God's been kind to you. I've heard some stuff like that, actually. That is bad counseling. Listen to what Michael Card, who is a contemporary um, Christian singer and actually wrote an incredible book called A Sacred Sorrow. For those of you who are not used to the discussion on grief and lament, this is a very accessible and readable book. The study guide is wonderful. I've used it with a number of people. I commend it to you. Um, But listen to what he says. In addition to there being Job's friends' insinuations that Job is suffering because of his sin, his friends try to shush Job's lamenting. They're actually trying to tell him to be quiet, which is the worst thing that you can do to someone who's hurting, by the way. According to their belief, such a conversation with God is blasphemy. This follows logically from their view of a God who is bound by the narrow equation of retribution. Let me remind you what that is. You're good, you get blessed. You're bad, you suffer. That simple. See how easy it is to understand God? And so based on their narrow equation, you can't question that. You can't say anything about that. But is that the God of the Bible? 
Does God deal with us according to our sin? Or does the psalm say otherwise? Does, does God not cast as far as the east is from the west the sins of his children never to be remembered again? Then why do we keep bringing them up? Why do we keep resurrecting that which is old and dead and gone? Does it not say that he sent Christ to save his enemies? Ephesians chapter 2. Where have we lost this? And I know what some of you are thinking, man, you're, you're skating close to cheap grace. No, 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 no. This is costly grace. This cost Jesus his life. It wasn't a, a, a memorial. It was real. He was human. He suffered. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not for our benefit, but for his. Quoting Psalm 22. So where, where, where's that cheap? And where is it cheap for us to actually question God? Is that cheap? Is that a cheap process to say, Lord, as I look at the current set of circumstances, I, I'm struggling that we, we don't care about the things that we ought to care about, that there are people suffering all over this world, and our biggest concern is, is Cameron going to be done in time for us to see the game? I don't know. We'll see. Our biggest concern is all kinds of other narrow-minded things that are cheap, not God's grace. Job is not going to experience cheap grace. It will be very costly to him, and it's been very costly to us as well. It means the death of your old man or woman. Does that sound easy to you? For those of you who are in the sanctification process and are not yet glorified, I know there's a couple of you in here, tell me, is it not a painful process? This is why we don't want to ask questions. This is why you wish I would just cut the sermon series in half and cut it short. And let's just move on to like Colossians or something. As if there's no suffering in Colossians. A revelation so we can just all be confused and we're fine. As if there's no suffering in the book of Revelation. And so, is it blasphemy to challenge or question God? You better hope not. Because it is one of the most important ways in which you will grow. And if you think that God cannot be questioned, your faith will be eviscerated and excavated so that when something hits you, you will have nothing left. It better be that you can challenge the Lord your God. And am I being cavalier about this? No. Read the scripture. Notice how Job does it. Notice how Habakkuk does it. Notice how Jeremiah does it. He didn't kill any of them for their questions. But our lack of questioning, I think, sometimes is killing us. And our inability to deal with the questions of others is also killing our ability to be the church in a broken and fallen world. Do you have any idea how hard it is to explain to someone flat-footed the sovereignty of God? <laughs> I mean, it's essentially, it's like uh, saying, hey, I want to learn quantum physics. Do you have a pamphlet I can read? No, no that is, those are deep concepts that have to be questioned. And the moment that you begin to unpack them, the people who live in the world who see the suffering that many of us have long grown blind to, they're going to immediately begin to question and say, wait a minute. You've got to be kidding me that you believe that. 
after all I have seen? And if we can't live in the midst of that questioning and walk with them and hear what they're actually asking instead of presuming and giving some canned answer that hasn't been lived, an unlivable theology, we're in trouble. We have no mission in this world. And how else are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling if questions aren't allowed? Let's turn back to the text, verses 7 through 12. Here, Zophar will appeal to his wisdom and speak of the grandness of stupidity. Can you, Job, find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? Is it higher than heaven? What can you do? Deeper than Sheol? What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Let me unpack what he just said. He basically said a lot of things that sound true, except they're not ultimately. Is God's ways not higher than our ways? Yes. Is some of his stuff beyond our understanding and finding out? Yes. But much of it is not. He's revealed much of it in his word, in creation, in the person and work of Christ, and in you, his image bearer. There is much for us to know. And it's interesting, how could Zophar know that which is beyond the limits of knowing, for those of you who are philosophic? That's a bad syllogism. You can't know what you don't know, necessarily. How does he know? What is the essence of his knowing? And so he's accusing Job of being utterly unable to know anything about God. And he basically says that it would only be possible when a donkey's colt is born a man in the wild. That's when it would be possible for you, Job, to know what God is doing. He just said, you're stupid. There's no way for you to come to know this. This is a reason theology that is utterly unlivable. Because if you can't know God, let me ask you, how can you please him? See, Zophar would say, well, you know you pleased him when you do something good and he blesses you. And when you do something bad and he makes you hurt, you know that was unpleasing to him. That's how you know. It's basically the scientific theory. It's that you go through the world kind of testing these various hypotheses and your conclusions are based on blessing and suffering. That's it. It's that simple. Was that... Is that what God set up? Tell me of Eden. Did he not make it clear in Eden what would cause hurt and what would bring blessing? Did that matter to Adam and Eve back when it was simple? It didn't. And so what he is saying is patently unbiblical. This is not one grand experiment where we figure out God has made it clear what pleases him. We just, we don't want to do it. We just don't. It's not even that we can't, and he's looking at us laughing because we, like children, are trying to accomplish something that is impossible, the impossible riddle. No. No, it's not that it's, it's, it's impossible. It's more that we won't, which makes it impossible. 
because of our rebellion. We're not neutral in this. It's not the law that is broken, it's us. And so God in his great grace makes himself known. Known to us through so many beautiful and wonderful ways and so many ways all throughout the day. The breath you have in your lungs is the evidence of God's grace and love for you today. We take that for granted. All of the blessings that you received, the meals that you have eaten recently that were wonderful in taste, the Lord gave you the taste buds to enjoy those things. You didn't create those taste buds. You didn't determine that it would love that buffalo chicken ranch dip that I ate at the game yesterday. I didn't decide that that was going to be amazing and, and cause me problems because I ate the entire bowl and let no one else have any. It's, it, so there's so many things that we don't determine that the Lord grants to us in his grace to say, I love you, I care for you. And even more, he gave us the person and work of Christ to say that I am to be known and I can be known and I can be drawn near to without any other veil. That once Christ is your mediator, you will never need another mediator. You now can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive all that you need. Amen? But this isn't what Zophar is teaching. He's saying none of that's possible for you. It would take an utter twist in creation for that to happen. Listen to what Meredith Klein um, scholar from Westminster, Philadelphia, uh, who has passed, said of this. He said, Zophar would have made better use of his excellent doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God, however, if he had humbly recognized the limitations of his own knowledge of divine providence and had not presumed to understand Job's suffering to perfection. Let me read that again. Zophar would have made better use of his excellent doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. However, if he had humbly recognized the limitations of his own knowledge of divine providence and had not presumed to understand Job's suffering to perfection. We do those we serve a tremendous disservice when we act as if we know exactly what they're going through. No, you don't. You do people a tremendous disservice when you say to them, you just need to move on. We've done this with the racial reconciliation question. Can't we just move on? Hmm. Who's saying that again? Who's, who's controlling that conversation as it turned out? We colonials? Yeah, of course we should move on. Because I don't want to keep thinking about it. I don't want to have to deal with it. I don't want to have to question. I don't want to ask where God was in all this. Let's just move on. But we would do so much better to listen and to recognize humbly what we cannot ultimately comprehend and that we too are in the sanctification process and we are part of God's unfolding kingdom. And that we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation, not counselors of foolish and worthless words, not those who purvey a bad, unlivable, unbiblical theology. We should test what we think we know always against the scriptures, amen? We'd be a whole lot better off, I think, if we did that. So is God truly unknowable and incomprehensible? Kinda. <laughs> There's parts of him that are, that are mystery. We read that in Deuteronomy 29, 29 for weeks. But that which is mystery is not the great big old jack in the box 
that when we get to the end of time, we're going to find out we had it all wrong and that he's actually evil and he's going to cast us out into the back part of the universe for aliens to kill us. I, I don't know. That's not it. The mystery part is going to be what is going to take an eternity for us to enjoy and appreciate because it's that good. And in our limitations, we're not yet ready. But what he has revealed to us allows us to make it between the now and the not yet. In this liminal space where we suffer, where we ask questions, where we wrestle, where we grow. To close out, and before we transition into the Lord's table, let me read Zophar's final comments. They're essentially it's the same thing all of his other friends have said to him. He's not saying anything new here. But he is kind of driving the point home. Listen to what he says. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it away and let no injustice dwell in your tents. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. You will forget your misery and will re- you will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Now some of that sounded good for a second, didn't it? We can put that on a a little calendar and get away with people maybe not knowing what he's really saying. Because what he's really saying is, is that you have no hope if you are currently suffering other than repentance. There's no other way suffering can be measured or understood. None. And so there is confusion here. He's saying you either repent or you will die. There's no hope for you otherwise. But this is not true. It's just not true. And he even harkens back to something Job said in chapter 10, verse 16. He said, you will be able to lift up your head. Remember, Job said, even if I could lift up my head, you would hunt me even more fiercely. Well, Zophar says, well, that ain't true. If you actually repented, you could lift up your head and everything would be fine because of the retribution principle, right? It's simple math. Good theology, simple math. No, it's unlivable. It's unbiblical. It's just not true. Listen to what Gustavo Gutierrez says in On Job, Latin American liberation theologian. Beautiful sentiments, though, about Job's friends. He says, Job's friends' arguments are like a wheel spinning in air. They don't go anywhere. Theirs is the wasted energy of intellectuals who get excited but do not actually do anything. That's an indictment on a whole bunch of us. They are incapable of taking a step forward because the impulse that makes them string arguments together is purely verbal. Why do they keep arguing, Job will ask, and with him all the innocent sufferers of every age of human history, if they have nothing to say? The question applies to every theology that lacks a sense of the mystery of God. The self-sufficient talk of these men is the real blasphemy. Did you hear that? Because some of us need to hear that. Our theology is way too self-sufficient. Our theology is way too unlivable and unbiblical sometimes. He goes on to say, the self-sufficient talk of these men is the real blasphemy. Their words veil and disfigure the face of a God who loves freely and gratuitously. 
The friends believe in their theology rather than the God of their theology. See, we got to be so careful because some of us love to be intellectual and have conversations but would never take a step toward actual resolution or reconciliation. We love to read books. Hey, if you come to my office, I'm guilty as charged. If you come to my house, I'm guilty as charged. They're everywhere. My wife wishes they weren't. For some reason, I like to put them in piles and just stick them. They're like little, little Ebenezers, I think, <laughs> just so my wife knows I was there. Oh, look, a pile of books. Cameron's been here. But if we don't do anything to rise up out of the conversation, if it's only verbal, then we have failed to understand the God who was not content for it to only be verbal. Remember, the word became what? Flesh. And it dwelt among us. We too are called to be incarnational, not verbal. And so we too must recognize that which we believe that's unlivable and unbiblical. I don't care if it's tradition. I don't care who said it. I don't care who wrote it. If it's not biblical, we must jettison it for the good of us and for the good of the kingdom. And so we want, my desire is that we would here at Christ Community Church have a livable and biblical theology that is not just spoken but lived out. This is why we talk so much about being missional, which I confessed to you last week. I've done you a disservice in a sense because maybe we don't have all the foundational pieces together to truly be that in some respects, but continue to love your neighbors in spite of that. We'll get there. But we need to be able to live in the midst of the questions. We need to be able to rest in the midst of the mystery. We need to be able and willing to walk with those who are suffering even when we are fearful that they may ask us a question we cannot answer. So do you have an unlivable or unbiblical theology? Are there some things that you believe that maybe you haven't tested like you should? God would rather you be a Berean than someone who just blindly toes the line. God would rather you ask the question, given what his word teaches us, than for you to just blindly accept and not work it out in fear and trembling, as you should do your salvation. So is your theology something that actually makes God known? Is, is, is what you put forth, what people see in you and about your Christianity, the fruit that is on your tree, does it make the God of the Bible known? Or is it making something else known? What is it revealing? That's a good question. This is why many of us put our trees and our lights under bushels so no one can see, so no one can question, so the fruit cannot be tested. Think of the damage that does to us. Would that we would know what is unbiblical, what is unfruitful, what is not of God, even if it hurt even if it meant that we had to give up our favorite shibboleth author, whatever it may be. So as we close out Job 11, Job 11 teaches us that an unlivable and unbiblical theology rises out of these three things. A failure to challenge and question God and the things of God. The belief that God cannot be known and is incomprehensible and simplistic mechanistic views of God and our relationship to him. You need to kind of think through those things. If any of those three things are a part of your faith, they are creating in you in some measure an unlivable and an unbiblical theology. 
And hear me, there's lots of extremes here. And what we like to do, as I'm sure some of you are thinking, is, man, Cameron talking about questioning God. That's, that's part of that old radical anti-theist part of him, that postmodern nonsense that he just can't shake. No, it's not, actually. It'd make my job a whole lot easier if you guys didn't ask questions. And if I were smart, what I'd do is teach you not to ask questions so I could have an easy week every week. But that's actually not true, is it? That doesn't create easy weeks. It creates harder ones because it's unlivable and it's unbiblical. And there are extremes at which you can ask questions blasphemously. Yes, not all questions are good questions. Not all questions are actually honoring to the Lord. But we can work through that. We're in community. We can help each other to recognize when we're teetering too far. But part of the problem is we don't know each other very well, do we? We don't ask each other these questions because we're afraid someone might think we're less of a Christian that we ought, than we ought to come across, myself included. But here's the beauty. The Lord provided us with a livable and a biblical theology. And when the Word became flesh in this world, He was saying, I want you to know me and I want you to know me intimately and I want to know you intimately. And when that word became flesh and lived among us and was perfect, the most beautiful way in which we could know him was for him to be broken so that we could actually come to the Lord our God with our questions, so that we could come to the Lord our God to receive what we need in a time of trouble, so that we could actually be in the presence of the Lord without our sins separating us from him. This is the beauty of the table, isn't it, on a day like today? On a day where we've wrestled with an unlivable and an unbiblical theology, as Zophar has said, God cannot be known. This table says, I am and can be known. You can actually touch and taste in a sense and know that I love you. So this, this table is for those who want to know the Lord our God, for those who know him through the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is a table that is to strengthen and nourish our faith in such a way that our, our theology becomes more livable and more biblical. Amen? Thank you, Lord, that you have given us this to remember you and not forget. Right? And so what we have is this thing that the Lord gave us on what was his last Passover with his people and what was the first Lord's Supper, he said, he said, I'm going to, my body is the bread and my body is going to be broken for you. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? It means that under the weight of our sin, past, present, and future, that's critical. If there's any part of your sin that can eclipse the cross, then you are in trouble and Christ died in vain. He's saying under the weight of your sin, past, present, and future, the sons and daughters of God, and the weight of God's wrath exhausted as a result of that sin. And that's important too. If God's wrath be not exhausted, what hope do you have as you go to stand before him someday? Do you have any hope if it is not exhausted? See, the brokenness of this body means that you are made whole. And he also said, and he took the cup and he lifted it up and he said, this, this is the blood that is spilled. The, the wine represents the blood that is spilled for the new covenant, meaning not only are you, are you granted the, the freedom from your sin and freedom from the wrath of God, you are actually granted entrance into the new covenant. You are made an heir. You are made new. You are covered in the blood of Christ. Your shame 
no more. In this table, we have the completeness of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And the fact that he gave us to keep doing it until he comes back reminds us that he rose, that death did not have the final say, and that he currently intercedes for us and is praying even now that this would be nourishing to us. Amen? And it also means that he's coming again. We haven't been left to figure it out. We haven't been left to our own devices to clean this mess up. He's coming again, and this table represents all of that, the fullness of the good news, the gospel.